Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Catherine Sexton is registered as a psychologist interim autonomous practice with the College of Psychologists of Ontario and a registered psychologist with the Psychological Association of Manitoba, practicing in the areas of both clinical and health psychology. She specializes in cognitive behavioral treatments for anxiety and mood disorders and chronic stress. Her areas of special interest and experience are in the assessment and treatment of worry, generalized anxiety disorder, health anxiety, insomnia, chronic stress, as well as pain management related to irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. Dr. Sexton received her PhD in clinical psychology from Concordia University of Montreal, training in the Anxiety Disorders Laboratory. She completed her pre-doctoral residency at the Clinical Health Psychology Program within the College of Medicine at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. She conducted further postdoctoral training in the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Clinic and Research Center at the University of Manitoba and Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg. Dr. Sexton currently sits on the board of the Canadian Association of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Dr. Sexton is also an active researcher and has published several scientific articles and book chapters on cognitions and behaviors influencing worry, generalized anxiety disorder, and stress in chronic gastrointestinal diseases. All right, Dr. Catherine Sexton, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here talking about these issues with you. Excellent. Yeah, I think we're going to have a really important conversation today. We're going to be talking about irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. Uh, it's a really common experience. However, it's not one that many people quite understandably like to talk about or like to admit to you know, being challenged with. In my experience, many people simply learn to live with it, uh, but at the expense of flexibility in their lives around travel, commuting, sports, relationships, things like that. Uh, personally, as a clinician, I've seen it really undermine the confidence of really competent, capable individuals. Uh, through our discussion today, Catherine, I'm really hoping that we can provide some good information around what IBS is, where it comes from, how it's treated, and for the clinicians out there, some of the special considerations or tips and tricks for assisting clients with, uh, with IBS. Okay, so to begin, I thought we could maybe start with uh, current conceptualizations around underlying mechanisms of IBS. In my reading of the literature, I've seen mention of the contribution of many factors, including stress, which we can maybe unpack a little bit, serotonin within the gut, the microbiome, et cetera. What is the latest thinking around the contribution of these factors to IBS? The latest thinking on, on all those factors is that they're all relevant and they, they, they play together. The sort of unifying idea is that IBS is going to be seen as a disorder of the interaction between our brain and our nervous system and our gut. And so it's really about processes in the brain that are not going normally, processes in the gut that are not going normally, and the conversation between the two that is not happening normally. Um, so that, actually gives relevance to all those some of the, many of those factors that you just mentioned stress yes um the gut itself how fast things are moving through the gut how well the gut is absorbing um food that passes through um what the microbiome is doing um and how the conversations are happening between your central nervous system and your enteric nervous system or gut nervous system what are some of the symptoms of uh, of ibs uh unfortunately our gut is not very specific in how exactly it tells its what, that something is wrong, but the specific symptoms to IBS that people are part of the criteria for it and that people report commonly are abdominal pain being a very major one. Um, the other cluster of them being um, change in, in, in what we call, in your, well, in your bowel movements or what we call like stool frequency, um, which comes about by either food passing through the gut faster or slower than it should. So 
we see some types of symptoms among people with IBS. So they're still part of the IBS overall symptom family, but you can have predominantly diarrhea type symptoms or predominantly constipation type symptoms, or you can unfortunately have a mix of both and fluctuations between the two. Related to that, those two main clusters, people report also a lot of other difficulties in gut function like bloating, which is very uncomfortable. Um, flatulence, which is challenging to meet. Um, sometimes urgency of stool, which is uncomfortable um, and challenging to handle. And a huge symptom not often talked about is it's fatigue from the wear and tear of that on the body and um, the energy drain of all of that going on. Well, I wasn't aware of the uh, fatigue piece, uh, certainly aware of the other ones. And I've seen that li- mentioned in the literature as well. But the, the, the fatigue is a new piece to the uh, puzzle. And again, that's just because of the wear and tear on the body of that pro- of that really central digestive process not working the way that it perhaps should be. Likely. Fatigue is one of those funny symptoms that we don't have a really excellent medical handle on um, why it comes up. But it's a huge part of the patient experience. Um, so that's coming. I mean, one way to think of that is wear and tear in the body, and people sort of seem to report more of it over time. So that, that sort of fits, like it's a continuous drain. But how much that's the you know gut wear and tear, the exhaustion of always coping with these symptoms and their interference, um, the, the the emotional energy drain of all that. Don't know how to say how much those all weigh up, but we know that it's it's certainly one of the symptoms that people find bothersome um, and interfering in their lives. So you mentioned the brain and the gut having these conversations. Uh, People may or may not be aware, but the gut has its own nervous system that we call the enteric nervous system. It's able to operate somewhat independently. And one of the nicknames for it is the second brain. Catherine, can you maybe talk a little bit about the kind of con- the kind of conversations that happen between our, our central nervous system and the enteric nervous system? How specifically might they kind of interact or speak with one, one another throughout uh, the course of a given day? They're conversing all the time um, and in both directions, I think, is the key thing to remember always, right? Um, this isn't just top-down control or, or bottom-up information. It's a dialogue between the two. Um, and that means that, yes, a trigger or something that can set off symptoms not going well can come from either direction um, and feed forward through either direction. Um, so that's going to be the, the main thing to always keep in mind when we're sort of seeing this, right, that it's not one factor just having one outcome or one consequence. It's about the interplay of all these factors going on all the time. So this is a really complex system from the sounds of it. Uh, We had mentioned stress off the top, and uh, I think it would be worth unpacking that just a little bit. I think it's really interesting that a disorder of the bowel, uh, one of the predominant treatments is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that might speak to the underlying mechanism around this. So, you know, Catherine, in our chats leading up to this podcast, we, we, you know, we did want to talk a little bit or a lot perhaps about the impact of stress on IBS. So using that as a jumping off point, what is the contribution of stress to IBS? How do we conceptualize that specifically? One of the, I find exciting changes or recognitions that came out when, when new, new criteria were announced four years ago, in 2016, for the diagnosis of IBS the sense that we've really evolved as a community to widely accepting that psychological factors are an important part of the big picture. Stress is one framework to see some of the things that we can at least try to 
target when we talk about treating things multidisciplinarily and from a, with a psychological perspective. And now treatment of choice is really a multidisciplinary thing. We want it, want it needs to be part of the mix along with medical treatments, dietary treatments, psychological treatments really need to be part of that whole conversation. Because again, it's, it is a complex system. Treating one piece of it is probably not enough. We need to be talking, trying to treat all the sections of what's going on. So stress is a useful framework to come at the psychological contributions through because in your stress system, it is a physiological system. It's dialed in to all parts of your body, right? We talk about the HPA axis all the time. Um, we talk about how that's connected into your immune system functioning, into your physical functioning, um, into your emotional functioning. So there's a stress has a very direct link on how we're We've modeled how it's affecting our physiology. So that's a helpful reason to talk about it. From the other perspective, it's also very useful coming at it from a cognitive behavioral framework. It lends itself well to understanding and sort of incorporating all the factors in a person's life that might be leading to a to general overwhelming of that stress system or overfiring of that stress system if things are really tough. So one of the things that actually is useful sort of paradigm shift for, for healthcare professionals, for us psychologists, for clients and patients too, is, is to change how we think about the concept or even the word stress, right? Previously, unfortunately, we think about it in terms of an event happening out there, something that is a stressful thing. We have that in our language, but there isn't actually one single event that's going to make everybody respond in the same fashion. It's going to mean the same thing to everybody. Uh, and so we have to redefine how we think about that two things to really keep in mind, right? The impact of stress is in the meaning of it for us, for each person separately. So in other words, coming up from CBT model, we've already got that idea that how we think about something happening, how we think about events, how we think about relationships, how we think about ourselves, all those things play into how an event or a challenge will land on us and how it lands on us, not just what happens out there, but how it lands on us really speaks to them. Okay, what physiological systems are now kicking into gear and having an impact on the body? So we need to think of that concept. Our T in CBT, <laughs> our thinking is important. Another, another way to think of it too, right? I think of often stress as an equation, not just a thing. Right now we're all in this stressful situation to call it that of, of COVID-19 and how it's impacting us, right? But it's too simplistic to say, well, COVID-19 is stressful. Um, it's stressful in different ways for many different people. And the best way to conceptualize that is to think of, well, there's a top to that equation and a bottom to that equation. There is COVID-19, this series of events, falls on different people in different ways. Some people have financial struggles from it, some people actually have it. <laughs> Other people are finding the isolation very difficult. Um, it's, it's hitting us differently. So the top of that equation, how big is the challenge? What is the meaning of the challenge? Changes from person to person. But even that by itself is not enough to actually predict whether our system is gonna be overwhelmed by it or not. We need a bottom part of the equation, which is for us, for the person, for, for me, is the size, the meaning of that stressor enough to overwhelm my capacity to handle it and the resources I have at my disposal to help me with that? Or is my denominator bigger than my numerator or vice versa? It really is almost a math equation. And it's a helpful thing because it lets us talk then about all the contextual things going on in a person's life that are feeding into the end outcome, which is, is a person feeling overwhelmed by the challenge that they're faced with? Or are they feeling that they can handle it? And it's really that what we call perceived stress, the outcome of that ratio that is that is the best tell of whether the body is going to kick into gear and have a strong stress response that will feed into our enteric nervous system, our CNS system. 
and, and potentially kick off symptoms of something like IBS or, or start those other dysfunctional processes going in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that stress can manifest in many different ways, and it often depends on the person's biological vulnerability, right? So during a period of prolonged stress, someone may develop IBS, but in another individual that can manifest as OCD symptoms and another person that can manifest as a skin rash or some sort of uh, immune disturbance of some kind. There's any number of ways that this can happen. And uh, yeah, I really like that sort of risk resource model way of thinking about stress. I often explain to clients is, well, if you owe you $10 and you have $10, no problem, right? But if you owe $10 and you only have $1, that's a big problem. But at the same time, if you owe 1000 and you have 1000 again, no problem. So it's never really the, just exactly like you said, it's never the absolute size of the stressor. It's the resources that you have to bring to bear to dilute the impact of, the, of that stressor ultimately. So yeah, that could be, lead to really interesting conversations with clients around, um, you know, yes, what's going on in your life, but what resources can you bring to bear? And often I, what I found with clients is they haven't often considered the coping resources available, right? They're, they're so worried about offsetting the risk without considering the in, internal resilience they may be able to bring to the table in order to make a, you know, objectively sort of difficult situation quite bearable, actually, with, with some uh, problem solving. The concept of stress has found its useful model in what we call stress diathesis models. There, We each have different diathesis or vulnerabilities that we bring to the table genetically, um, from social learning, from other things. And yes, the idea is that stress can come and trigger that. Have, to have a conversation with that, so to speak, physiologically. Um, and so, again, the idea of stress captures all of the, the different important psychological um, understandings that we can bring to the table, but it also connects so well into how we are viewing the physiological part too and how those things interact together. There's some really interesting models in addition to the CBT model that look at the interaction between the mind and the body. I've been really fascinated by some of the research that's been done around the impact of unexpressed emotions on physical health. And I believe there's quite a bit of uh, data emerging around this, but it does seem that in addition to building a resource to deal with stress, one has to experience and sometimes process and move through the emotions that are there. Otherwise, they, get, they seem to get sort of parked in the body somewhere. And I appreciate that's probably inaccurate scientifically, but you know, Catherine, you and I both do quite a bit of trauma work. And I think what, you know, what we've discussed previously is that, you know, you do see a lot of somatic complaints come in the door along with the presentation of PTSD or PTSD with depression, things like that. Do, do you believe that's a fair statement or, or what have you seen clinically as a, as a clinician? Absolutely. Um, past experiences, traumas are relevant for sure. Uh, I, you know, I like to, I can sort of switch the, the topic or the idea of storing emotions or storing memories in the body to more to, to appreciating it's about the connections. It's always about the connections, um, even emotionally in the brain, right? It's not that your emotion or that fear, yes, or amygdala fires when it has fear, but it's not about the amygdala. It's not a dysfunction of amygdala. It, it's in how the amygdala is talking to all the other parts of your brain. So now what we're just noticing in IBS is that, okay, the gut's part of the conversation. It's just part of the conversation. Um, and so, yes, it has somatically, of course, these things play out in the body and have impacts on the body. And the body feeds back into then our emotional and thinking experience of things. And so, yes, emotions, experiences are stored in the connections and the pathways without, throughout the body that they are laying down and, and, and reinforcing and solidifying. That's so well said. And it really reminds me of, of what Joseph Ledoux has been talking about a lot lately in his sort of updated conceptualizations around the function of the amygdala. And really, he, you know, what his model says is that without a self, there's no 
experience of emotion, right? Because otherwise it's like, who is it happening to? What are the implications thereof, right? So there has to be a sense of self as determined by those interconnections within the brain in order to allow the experience of an emotion to move forth. And when you think about that, it's kind of, you know, mind blowing because, you know, when you have a pet cat or a pet dog, we act as though, and they appear to have similar quote unquote emotional experiences to what we have, but without being able to nest that experience within a sense of self, it's unclear what they actually experience at all. Right, it might simply be the the activation of sort of defensive circuits uh, with sort of behavioral programs, and you know, they're obviously they have access to operant conditioning and, and things like that. So, yeah, it, that sense of self and the connections and the meaningfulness are really the final common pathway to determining how someone's going to experience something for sure. Just to get back to uh, to IBS for a little bit, you know, Catherine, can you give us a sense of the prevalence of this problem and maybe if, if there's any patterns with respect to age of onset or if there's a distribution distribution between men and women in terms of how this is experienced? So IBS is actually quite remarkably prevalent. Estimates range sort of in the in the 10 to 20% range from different studies. And yes, there is a there are differences over the lifespan. Probably more more common to have it emerge in your 30s, 40s, sort of between 30 and 50. Um, so the prevalence rate there is usually more between 15 and 20%, roughly. So think of it, that's about about a, up to a fifth of people or one fifth of people are struggling with some form of, of IBS. We do unfortunately see it on the other end of the lifespan in childhood and adolescence. Um, it can play out there. More often though, it is it might be other precursors and discomfort in the gut that is, that is going on, but it's not actually been diagnosed or even necessarily developing into IBS. Um, but a, a sizable number of children who are struggling with what we call recurrent abdominal pain um, might go on to later develop functional gut disorders and IBS is one of them. So a lot of folks when they're first diagnosed later in their early early adulthood might might report some childhood experiences with gut pain. I'm not sure how prevalent this is, but I've heard that in many cases there can be a physical disturbance that will precede the onset of IBS, like a stomach flu or food poisoning or some sort of GI infection. Is that a, a common pattern for many folks? It's not a common pattern, but it is a prevalent pattern. So it's not that it doesn't explain most developments of IBS, but it is definitely one known pathway to IBS. Uh, and again, to come back to our, our stress diathesis model, right? The one form of stress is a physical illness. Um, and so, yeah, having having a bout of flu or a, a bacterial infection or some other process going on in the gut, if there's if there's a vulnerability there underlying it, that can be the thing that sort of sets it sets it off, and you know, um, actually starts to produce either an unhealthy microbiome or something else that that it starts the whole the whole cascade of of communications going badly. Um, so yes, that is one pathway. I was struck by your observation of it perhaps peaking in sort of middle-ish age. I know that back pain follows a similar pattern, right? Where it tends to emerge, the, the prevalence peaks in middle age and then drops off, which is interesting, right? Because if, if you think of it as a deterioration in some physical aspect of the back, it should, it should presumably get worse over time, but actually abates as people get older, again, which speaks to some of the psychological processes that go on around this, similarly perhaps to... Uh, to, uh, to IBS. What about, um, I, I believe I may have cut you off a second ago, but male-female distribution. Uh, what, what do we see across genders? So we see a higher prevalence in women. Um, in the general population, the ratio is about two to one. 
not uncommon with a lot of mental, a lot of physical mental health problems. When we, when we look at people who are help seeking for IBS, we see a much more concentrated, um, more dramatic ratio up to maybe four, even four to five to factor of one. Um, so women are, are coming forward with these symptoms more often, um, but they also seem to just generally be more experiencing them more often as well. And in your experience or from what you've read in the literature, is IBS frequently comorbid with other conditions like depression, anxiety, panic, things of that nature? Yes, unfortunately. Um, so it has its, its other physical comorbidities as well. But yes, it is very well documented from both directions um, so that pre- prevalence of anxiety, mood disorders, for instance, are, are higher among um, people who are struggling with IBS. If you look at the other direction too, right, with psychologists, we see this often. If you have a client help seeking for a totally other reason, anxiety, trauma, depression, et cetera. Um, yeah, there's a higher prevalence of IBS among those folks too. So they really are, yeah, comorbid together quite often. What are some of the physical conditions that one has to be on the lookout with respect to perhaps referring your client back to their family physician for uh, medical investigation of some kind? That's, a, that's interesting and excellent question. It, it doesn't come up that often, actually, because it's not, we're not, I'm not usually the first point of contact for somebody who has these symptoms, right? Um, usually they're reporting those symptoms first to their family doctor, hopefully being referred to a gastroenterologist or other specialist who can help tease that all apart. Um, and so, but yes, they are on the lookout um, for other problems. So one of the historical challenges is TIPIBS. Again, gut, systems, gut symptoms are not very specific. Um, there are only so many ways the gut tells you something's wrong, as I've said. Um, and so Unfortunately, IBS is the one of the ones that we call a functional problem. You can't take a picture of it and see and show that someone has IBS. Um, and that makes has made it understandably hard to um, define, diagnose, study and understand. <laughs> um, and unfortunately also, it, it still has some, some realities that it makes it harder to diagnose. So historically it was actually more of a diagnosis by exclusion. Uh, what else have we ruled out? And if everything else is ruled out, then maybe it's IBS. Um, we've moved away from that a lot. We're now, we have what's called the Rome criteria to specify what the symptoms are of IBS. And we're actually now at Rome 4 criteria as of 2016. So we've got come quite some some way in saying, no, no, there's a, there is a distinct symptom profile, at least to, to an extent. Um, but coupled with that is that there is still that idea that gastroenterologists and family physicians are ruling out other factors to make sure there's not something more severe in the picture. Um, sort of, I know we've talked a little bit about distinguishing it for people from uh, what, what's the difference between IBS and IBD, for instance, right? Which unfortunately are so close in acronyms that they we, we trip over them and we get confused, but they're actually quite different. Um, and IBD is much more, um, much less prevalent, much more severe disorder to have. And so, and one that does have some structural implications. So um, not that we can see every part of it, but we can see some physical changes in the body sometimes amongst severe presentations. So that's something that, for instance, a GI physician is looking to rule out and along with a host of other, other things. And for the listener, by IBD, we mean inflammatory bowel disease. We're talking about conditions like Crohn's disease, for instance, right? That's right. So Crohn's is one. So IBD is a family, actually, of disorders. Um, Crohn's disease is, is one of the most commonly known ones. Um, unfortunately, one of the more severe ones, too, in that in that group. Uh, another very common one that we talk about is ulcerative colitis. So these are disorders of um, the gut, but of the immune system functioning. So that they're, they are, as the title says, inflammatory disorders, which means your immune system um, is producing information in your body that in 
and overproducing information in your body in help and helpful ways throughout your gut. The family is the, that process is true for the whole family. What is different is, is the specific locations and how widespread that inflammation is um, and how common it is to also pr promote some other problems, uh, other complications in the gut or um, even systemic complications throughout the system because of that um, dysfunction in how the immune system is, is working. I'm not sure if you're aware of the answer to this or not, but uh, do we know if those inflammatory bowel diseases have that same sort of psychological overlay to them or, or are influenced by psychological factors? Um, absolutely. Uh, again, we're talking about stress and how the brain processes stress and how the brain dialogues down to your nervous system. And that isn't unique to IBS. Uh, it's also not unique to, um, to just unhealthy guts, right? Um, it's pretty widely understood and I'm sure even anecdotally anybody listening can appreciate when you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling anxious, you know, we talk about butterflies in our stomach, or maybe you have to go to the bathroom more often. Um, this is, these are universal um, consequences in the body to having high levels of stress. So it's not hard to go one step further and go, Hmm, if there's, if there's any kind of diathesis or vulnerability or malfunction in our gut um, and you add stress into that picture, uh, it is absolutely going to worsen the symptomatic picture. Um, and it's also, we're, again, I, through all the work I do, I always like to come back to the idea of bidirectionality, right? It's not just that there's stress on the body making the symptom worse. Let's not forget that having these chronic problems by itself can be a huge complicating factor in the other stresses of life, uh, making that, making the top of that equation a little bit bigger from in lots of different areas, a little more challenging. And, and also on the bottom of the equation, creating some real restrictions in people's life that make it harder to access or have or coping resilience to. So the disease itself um, changes our functioning and that plays into, again, that stress equation and then feeds back into, <laughs> feeds back into that conversation. Um, and so it can be hard to get ahead of that whole, that whole cycle for, for IBS, for IBD too. Adding just another ingredient to that cycle, the issue of stigma appears to loom quite large around IBS. And I can imagine a whole host of ways that stigma can contribute to the maintenance and exacerbation of symptoms. Uh, Catherine, can you elaborate on the impact of stigma on IBS? For sure. I, it's certainly a conversation topic that, that comes up often with, with clients. And unfortunately, also, I think it's having a big impact if human who comes up and has the conversation with us. We don't collectively talk about how our guts are functioning very often in, in, in society, right? Unless you're, unless you're in a new parent group <laughs> where it is very normal and helpful and validating to talk about how many times your infant has just, you know, blown poop all over the table and all over you. This is not a conversation that we have as adults. Uh, and that makes it easier to feel embarrassed, easier to feel ashamed, easier to not raise a conversation and not access social supports for the very real struggle that you're going with, right? Added to that, I think there have been just the history of how these, how we have come to understand these problems and treat these problems um, medically, psychologically, um, unfortunately has lent itself a little bit to, to increasing that stigma. So again, we've, we've spoken of how IBS is a, it's, it's a problem of function. It's a problem in how your gut is working. It's not a structural problem. And so yeah, it has taken quite some time for research to to evolve and be able to actually describe what's what is what is it in the body that's going wrong. Um, and so, we, and there's there's that's true for not just gut problems. There's a, there's a long history of a lot of problems that are less easily diagnosed. Where we go for through a period of going, well, is it 
can't see what's wrong is it psychological in nature. Coming full circle, it is psychological in nature. It's, it's, it's hugely, psychological factors are very important, but not in the way that we used to think about that, where we would think of it as um, those symptoms being attributable to psychological factors or poor coping or not being able to handle things well, right? Um, and we, or it's, unfortunately, that has led to a lot of people getting explicitly or implicitly the message that their symptoms are, quote unquote, all in their head. Um, I think that's a phrase that we hear lots and that people people report. Um, and it is in your head, your brain's in your head, but it's in your gut too, and it's in how they talk to each other. Uh, it's not about personal failing to cope well. Um, and so, but of course that other idea still insidiously exists or um, is out there and people internalize it and makes it uncomfortable to come forth sometimes and talk about it. I think we are making huge strides to, to overcome that, particularly as, as the, in general, the whole healthcare profession has moved on thinking to seeing it as, again, a disorder of, health, of communication, um, to seeing the organic pieces, to, see, to being able to better describe, you know, those psychological factors. How are they playing out? Why, why are they involved? Why is it relevant? Um, but we haven't had that trickle down effect to the general population, um, all healthcare professionals, and, the, and then ultimately people who are struggling with the IBS to really feel that it's not something to be ashamed of, that it's not personally their fault that they have these symptoms. Um, and the more we can, we can sort of spread that better under refined understanding of it, I think the, the more likely we are to overcome stigma about this problem. And we need to, because coming out and seeking help is important, um, because feelings like shame and embarrassment um, and fear of someone finding out or fear of those symptoms, those play out in the brain and increase stress and um, change how we behave and change how we think and play into the whole dialogue, right? No, absolutely. And I'm just imagining if there's a listener out there who's wondering if they have IBS or not, what would be some of the indications that it's time to go check in with your family physician or a psychologist versus conceptualizing it as perhaps maybe a normal reaction to having to do a public speaking task or, you know, give a speech at your best friend's, best friend's wedding, something like that. What What is the difference between normal everyday manifestations of kind of stress-induced gut motility versus something more indicative of IBS? I think frequency is a big indicator, right? Um, and it's a part of the diagnostic criteria. So it's not just, you know, I, I had to give, I was MC at, at my best friend's wedding or I had that big exam or that big exam period and I had some gut symptoms throughout it. It's it's that over a period of like six months or more, you are having gut symptoms, that intense abdominal pain and the change in bowel stool frequency bowel habit and stool frequency in other words um, that you're having it at least once a week that the symptoms um, are strong and interfering are, are significant for you and getting in the way and occurring often I think because we don't talk about IBS, people are sometimes in the dark with respect to how actually severe uh, the impact can be on people's lives. You know, Catherine, can you maybe paint the picture of maybe some moderate or to severe, moderate to severe presentations of IBS and the kinds of difficulties that that person may struggle with day to day as they move about their lives? It's an excellent question. It's always useful to have a picture of what someone else's experience might be like, what walking in someone else's shoes might be like. It's, it's worth an IBS talking about that there are different subtypes with different presentations of the symptoms. Whatever example I might give you isn't representative of everybody, but imagine for a second that you have recurrent and unpredictable frequent diarrhea um, throughout your day on more than once in the week, several times per week, perhaps. Um, and imagine that it's now, you know, 
think about even just getting out the door in the morning and thinking about getting ready for getting ready for work and getting out the door for work and um, traveling to work um, and getting ready for that meeting with social peers, um, thinking about how you um, go about yeah, handling those high pressure situations that we all face anyway, when you know that your gut is more likely than not to, like everybody else, experience some symptoms under stress, but some symptoms that are more severe. Um, add to that that you might, from learned experience, have 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 lived the fact that once once that stress kicks in and gets going, that the system doesn't just recover quickly, but you might come to fear um, those challenging situations as triggers of longer term problems with, the, with, with, with your gut. Thinking about work and performance, but that's, you know, that's not one of the other more critical areas that I talk about with people all the time is just social functioning, right? We make plans with people, uh, we family members, friends, we have dates for coffee, we have lunches, lunch dates, we have a certain set of social expectations about how that's supposed to go. Um, I say I'm gonna meet you for coffee on, on Friday at four, I cancel with you four weeks in a row, all of a sudden that relationship is starting to feel strained and uncomfortable. Um, and you're finding that uncomfortable. You maybe also might start to dread going because you are aware that symptoms very, might really come up on your en route to the place. You might want to restrict what kinds of activities you do with that person. Maybe going to you know a big social party doesn't feel very fun anymore. Um, and now all of a sudden we're 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 not only having some some strain and um, difficulty in, ex in in explaining why we're not there for the third time on Friday afternoon at four or now where we were or where we don't want to go to that particular activity maybe it becomes easier over time to just avoid it or restrict activities or pull out of things that otherwise matter to us um, and so you know it's not hard to see why over time you know we might start to experience not only more anxiety about about everyday situations but maybe more disappointment maybe more maybe loss of meaningful activities um and the other piece on top of all that picture that i want to paint too is that all those things aren't necessarily predictable right uncertainty and unpredictability um, are part of the symptom presentation um, and none of us find dealing with that kind of uncertainty very easy yeah it's uh it's so emblematic of of challenges in general that we see as clinicians where these problems tend to attract additional problems and all of us sort of like a one plus one equals three sort of scenario, right? Where things just start to get momentum in the wrong direction in the person's life. And all of a sudden now you've got three or four major kind of uh, conundrums that you've got to undo. We, we may talk about this in terms of the treatment of IBS, but I'd, I'd be curious to get your observations, Catherine, around what are kind of the routines or rituals that you've seen uh, clients develop in terms of managing their symptoms? What are some of the common go-tos that people come in the office describing that they do to cope with uh, the IBS symptoms manifesting at these really inopportune, inconvenient times? One of the things they think that is talked about a lot and often is the hypervigilance that starts to set in about trying to predict when that symptoms might come and what it might interfere with and how it might interfere. Um, and then some of the safety behaviors that come to help genuinely try to cope with that you know so the idea of um trying to be aware all the time of where the nearest bathroom might be um is a very common thing of course one can easily identify with that you know if you, if you put yourself in that in those shoes right if you want to go go shopping through um go to your christmas shopping in a busy mall okay where's the bathroom just in case um where you know if i if I'm traveling, if I'm even getting in the car and taking, you know, maybe I'm just going up to the cottage for the weekend for, for two hours. How, what's, what's available to me en route if I should have all of a sudden a need to, to go to the bathroom. 
at, at other more other ends of that, you know, what do I do if I do end up having fecal incontinence, for instance? Do I have a change of clothes in the back seat with me all the time? Um, those kinds of things come up fairly often. I think the restriction of what kinds of activities you do, I think, also starts to be important. Um, trying to again, you might not go to a mall that doesn't have easily accessible bathrooms anymore. You might um, choose activities that are where the risk of publicly embarrassing symptoms, um, not just incontinence, flatulence, other things like that, um, are are less likely to be noticed. So we see we see that often. I've uh, also seen clients strategically fast, you know, before, you know, going to different events or whatnot, which of course can make it more stressful, right? Because as your body, you know, reduces caloric intake, it actually is a stressor, increases adrenaline, which of course is going to precipitate some of the various symptoms that you're trying to, to avoid. One question I had for you as well, and, and again, appreciating uh, you may not be aware of the answer, but I've had many clients with IBS swear up and down that food intolerances are at the root of their problems. And food intolerances are a matter of great debate in some circles. Um, do we know if there's evidence around the impact of uh, food and food intolerances on IBS symptoms? So for instance, some, some clients will say that spicy foods, for instance, are, are particularly particularly likely to evoke an episode? So yes, food matters. It's what's going into the system. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it is important. And thinking through dietary triggers is a useful piece to even bring into treatment. The challenge here is that it, no, it's not a single food intolerance that is producing IBS. It, it's not lactose intolerance. It's not um, gluten intolerance, uh, like, like in celiacs. Um, but Yes, some some foods in general are harder for the, the gut to process um, and might be more likely to produce symptoms, but, or and, that seems to be very, very ideographic. There isn't one rule or one thing that fits all for all people with IBS, but what foods are going to be difficult for that person's gut. So this is... This is a huge frustration for the clients and patients themselves, for the healthcare system, for research, right? I don't... Having someone come into my office and say they have IBS, you know, not me, not their physician, not their not their dietitian. Uh, nobody has the answer in terms of what they should be avoiding and how often they should be avoiding it, um, and what what might fall badly for them. And just to add another level of complexity, right? Even even for those people, it's not that, you know, I had spicy foods on Tuesday, um, and it, okay, it produced symptoms, but I had them last Friday and I was fine, right? It's not even that it's going to be constant across time in terms of how it, what, what impact it has. So this is really tricky for people to tease out. Um, um, and yes, added with the fact that the consequence of having a flare can be quite difficult. We can start, you can see how someone can start to find any rule that works even a little bit and, and, and cling with it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, we should be looking for the rules. You should be looking for your own triggers, right? We do, like, well, at some point, somewhere in in, um, in the process of learning to manage IBS, one has to start to become aware of one's own gut, one's own, one's own healthcare manager. Um, what what I hope people can try to work with is, is to see that flexibility, that, that, that variability even for themselves. Maybe there's one food that always plays badly in your gut, but I think very oftentimes there are a series of foods that are more likely to trigger for you sometimes. I'm going to come back to the concept of stress here and including stress from a broader term of even the stress of food on your gut, right? The idea is not that any one stressor is going to for sure always trigger a symptom. It's better to think of this as a little bit as a, as a, as a, as a mountain or like a haystack really, right? So even coming back to that equation, having a series of stressors all playing out at the same time 
maybe if you are having a challenging week at work, time is tight, um, big exam at the end of the week, homeschooling kids right now during COVID, whoever knows what, right? A series of events going on, then maybe there's enough, there's enough, you're close enough to your stress threshold, you know, where the, where the denominator is overwhelmed by the, by the numerator, that that spicy food sort of is the last straw, the needle that broke, you know, the needle naysack that made the haystack finally fall to pieces, right? Um, and so we have to think of stress in that kind of dynamic way with lots of things at play. And so not, not one stressor, not one event is going to be the thing necessary that always triggers the final symptom. But we do, yes, realistically want to be aware of what factors might be playing into that system for that given person. I really like the way you conceptualize that. You know, we often see clients come in so understandably on the hunt for the formula that's going to yield a, a relief of symptoms and whether it be IBS or any other challenge that we might see come into the office. And sometimes we just don't know. And what I often say to clients is that, you know, our body and mind are under really no obligation to make any sense to us. They have their own internal logic that there's computations going on in there about the apparent danger in the environment that do not map onto what we think, quote unquote, but more, it's more about what's detected, what's felt what's processed unconsciously. And so, yeah, like it, I think it's probably ultimately an exercising and an exercise in being attuned to some of the broad patterns, but also tolerating uncertainty and knowing that there's never going to be a one-to-one relationship for the most part with respect to what goes on uh, outside of the body and what we experience internally. Yeah. And doesn't that just sound so easy to figure out? <laughs> this is a challenge. Yeah. But it's the reality. It is. So, you know, this might be a good segue into the uh, the treatment of IBS. I'm not sure if you want to back up and speak to sort of the CBT conceptualization uh, first and then, you know, dive into maybe walking us through a course of what CBT for IBS looks like. Uh, or if you want to go straight into talking about treatment, where would you like to start in, the, in that part of the discussion? As we do in treatment, starting with just thinking of the model first is helpful. So, you know, our, our very Boiled down to this very most basic CBT model, right? The basic idea is that how we think, how we feel, what actions we take, how we, you know, our behaviors, all those things um, affect each other. Again, that word bidirectionally. Um, and so it's not a far stretch. And in fact, we already do it in some of our other, other um, CBT models that we present. It's not a far stretch to make sure that, that I'm going to add the word letter P, that physiology is part of that model, right? And and again, that's not a foreign concept. We treat panic disorder, for instance, being very aware that your thoughts, your feelings, your actions are going to have an incredibly dramatic impact on the physiology and the sensations that you are feeling, right? So, they, so that CBT framework lends itself very well to IBS. Maybe the, the piece that's worth highlighting and being more aware of is that P is really dialed into C, B, and T, and it's going in both directions again, right? So that there's its own set of physiological processes that are going on all the time, um, and they are absolutely feeding up into the other three pieces, and conversations are happening. Laying that out just and helping clients be more aware of those conversations and how they're playing out for that person. One metaphor I found that clients really respond to is this idea of a train with some writing on the side of it that's passing by very quickly. Right. So you're having that experience. It's overwhelming. It's zoom, it's gone. And you haven't even had a chance to decode it. But one of the beauties of the CBT model is that it breaks things down into modules that we can decode into individual aspects of our experience and really slow that train down and be able to read what's on the side of it. Like, oh, I didn't even realize that it said that. Oh, I didn't even realize that it said that at this time under these conditions. There's that saying in business, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. 
So I think ultimately, you know, the CBT model is an analytic strategy, right? It helps people to appreciate what's going on with them. So once you've walked people through the uh, CBT model of IBS, what's the next stage in treatment? We are whole body, full functioning people. Everything, everything is on the table when you walk in the door, right? Um, and so, you know, assessing what else is in the picture is important. Um, what other comorbidities are there, um, physical and and um, mental health problems? Um, what other, even outside of that, what is going on in the person's social context and situational context? Um, yeah, how is the how is the disease impacted that? But even without that, just, just what's ha- what's happening? Um, Building that awareness is, is important. Putting things on the table is important. Um, and the other piece that is worth talking about right up front too is, you know, this is this is still a person is coping with physical symptoms on and off. There is no cure for IBS. This is going to keep happening. You know, so a conversation about how about about getting a better grip on those and understanding those and taking responsibility for those. Right. I don't mean this responsibility. And again, that stigma way where there are because of me, but because as I've mentioned, they're very ideographic. In other words, they vary for each person, for each person uniquely and differently over time. Um, nobody is gonna have full answers for you. It remains to us to start to get a handle on really understanding what drives our disease, what how does it present, what helps us cope with it the best. So starting that conversation early in treatment allows us to come back to it over time, you know, to be tracking symptoms over time, to be tracking and increasing our awareness of what might be feeding into this, um, what has what what helps for a given person, what doesn't. Um, and and so starting that off so that we can talk about it all the way through and, and monitor also, right? Are we able to make that whole system go better? Um, that's an important part of doing things, as you said sooner rather than later in treatment. Perhaps I'm projecting on my own preferences here, but I could really see an acceptance and commitment type of model mapping really ni- nicely to the treatment of IBS, right? Where we, we may not be able to influence the symptoms directly through our interventions, but we can work at increasing functioning aligned with values and be committed to experiencing some of the discomfort and uncertainty in the service of those values moving forward. Of course, that's just one take on how CBT for IBS could go. What are some of the interventions or what's the stance that you, you know, that we have in therapy towards IBS working under a CBT rubric? Yes, acceptance, super, supremely important for sure, and having those conversations. But the exciting thing is that actually we can have a direct impact on symptoms as we do psychological treatment. Um, and and some of the, some of the, there are a few, there are few RCTs for, for CBT for IBS now on the table. Um, and one of the interesting sort of um, insights from, from, research into the mechanisms of how it might work is that, uh, yes, we are improving important um, mental health outcomes like overall quality of life and anxiety um, and depressed mood and things like that. But we are having an independent and direct effect on symptoms too. That is possible um, to different, you know, not, not with enormous large effect sizes, right? It's not, this is, this is a multidisciplinary um, treatment framework we need other pieces too it's not falling on on psychology or reasonable to expect that you're going to have full symptom remission or or eliminate eliminate all symptoms but but we're having moderate effect sizes for some people in terms of in terms of reducing symptoms um and again that's because the your brain is involved in that conversation with your gut and there are processes there about how that is happening that aren't going well so if you change some things about how the the brain is processing emotions 
and thoughts. Um, yes, you will improve mental health. Yes, you will also improve physical functioning. Um, so, so CBT, coming back to your question, okay, what would you, what, what does it look like? How do we do that in CBT, right? Um, from with, we pull on, on as many levers as are available to us and we deal with whatever unique problems are there in front of us. Um, so treating, treating any comorbid issues is relevant. Um, treating the IBS and, and the way we cope with IBS, talking about how we manage that um, is relevant. Um, problem solving the other life stressors and problems that are going on, relevant. Um, working at increasing um, resilience and, and available coping resources, um, looking at social supports and, and looking at um, interpersonal um, connections and relationships and making sure that they're doing as well as they can. Um, noting noting as, as for each of us, right? Um, interpersonal stress is one of the most common sources of stress we have. Um, and so having, you know, for someone with a with gut problems, that normal everyday interpersonal stress is going to have more than of an impact, not just the way we all are commonly experiencing that, but it's going to actually affect our gut too. Um, so it's even more important. It's always important, but it's even more important to be talking about those things in, 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 in CBT, right? Doing interpersonal problem solving, um, which can involve some assertiveness training, can involve, you know, being attuned to what what feelings and emotions are coming up in a situation. Um, yes, it can be involved in what, how is the disease playing into that, right? As I, in that picture I painted, right, it, it's social interactions are can be hugely affected by one person's struggle with with the illness. Um, and so, working, well, these are topics of conversations worth doing. So. Just kind of put all that in a framework. It's useful to be tracking, tracking not just symptoms as we talked about, but stresses that are coming up, and bringing those back to the table and working through them, whatever methods they call for. And we have quite a decent sized toolbox at our disposal when it comes to CBT. Well, it's so exciting that we can have a direct impact on symptoms. And again, through modulating that chat that's going on between the brain and the enteric nervous system. And it really just makes me wonder how precisely they are talking to one another. And there's so many candidates around this, like there's cytokines, there's obviously neuro neurotransmitters, there's direct connections through the, uh, the vagus nerve, things like that. There's, that's probably a really exciting area that people are looking into. And even just the impact that the microbiome and shifts in the microbiome has on neurochemistry and vice versa, right? There's those amazing studies where they took the uh, the microbiome essentially out of a anxious strain of mouse, imported them into a mouse that was not anxious, and they became anxious. Now, it's obviously a little bit of a simplification, but that was the that was the main finding, right? So it's just it does appear that the microbiome uh, does have a really profound impact. Anyway, just speculating about the ways in which these entities chat with one another. Um, just building on the you know, dealing with the interpersonal stressors. I think a lot of the work that I've done with IBS, again, usually nested within like depression or trauma is its situational impacts, right? Like traveling to work or going to the mall or, you know, walk, you know, a lot of outdoor activities where there may not be ready access to formal washroom facilities. There's always the forest, of course, but, um, you know, what are some of the special considerations or what's the kind of work that you do around that, do you employ exposure types of paradigms or behavioral experiments? And again, just because of the topic that we're dealing with, you know, it's not like, you know, having a panic attack while unpleasant uh, is, I think, qualitatively different than having a, uh, a bathroom accident in one's pants on the bus, 
right? There's a certain, there's a different set of ramifications to that. So, sorry, it's a very long question, a number of questions embedded in there, but how do you treat those situational kinds of impacts? And then are there any special considerations just being honest about the nature of IBS and what goes on with respect to symptoms? All the usual strategies that we know work in other forms of CBT are on the table here. Um, Exposure treatments are helpful um, in, in learning that we can cope in some situations um, in overcoming hypervigilance piece of always walking around dreading those negative outcomes that are that are realistically possible, um, but rarer than we fear them to be. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. Um, so in other words, we're, we're, we're learning to live with uncertainty um, and exposure helps with that. Um, cognitive reevaluation strategies are useful too, right? Um, you know, is it how how bad is it if it happens? <laughs> um, if you think again about that picture, there will be lots of of learning going on in terms of how that how living in that way and with those fears and with those realities is starting to change how I see myself, how I see other people, um, and being explicit about how that's changed and putting on the table to to look in the face and make sure that we're seeing things um, again as accurately as we can. Again. There, there's no part of this, like in all CBT, that's about putting on rose-colored glasses and pretending things are fine when they're not. These are real challenges. Um, but we do want to make sure that we are seeing things as accurately as we can and not over-accommodating for things either. And coming back to interpersonal peace, because it is very relevant. It's relevant in every, <laughs> not just with our friends and our family, but in everything we do, right? We go to work in interpersonal in an interpersonal environment, usually. Um, even in COVID, even in COVID, we're all working from our homes, right? We are part of social systems at work. We're on Zoom meetings, we're dialoguing with expectations that are being asked of us socially. Um, and and someone with IBS is gonna have symptoms that are gonna get in the way and create a need for, for dialogue about um, some of those challenges and how it might impact them and what they might need um, to be able to, to meet those challenges and 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 keep themselves healthy. Um, and those are not comfortable conversations to have. And we also know too, that they can fall on people that are less accommodating than we would want or less understanding than we would want, right? We are, we also are in a dialogue with other people, speaking of dialogues, uh, that goes in both directions. And unfortunately it kind of falls to some with IBS to figure out how best to manage those interactions and, and try as best as they can to get their needs met. Leading up to that assertiveness, Practice is very important, and 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 alongside that too, right? Some cognitive reevaluation and just processing, just identifying what some of the barriers are to effective assertive communication. And there are some significant barriers, right? We've talked about stigma. We've talked about the fact that this can be embarrassing problems to talk about. Talk about, you know, we should mention too, right? That this is not. We sort of have a sense of set of expectations as a society, but it's all trying to contribute as much as possible. And unfortunately, a real reality for people with IBS um, is that there are times in life when very commonly the ability to perform work normally is going to be affected, much like getting the flu, but not quite so effectively time limited. Um, <laughs> will wax and wane over a lifetime and perhaps unpredictably. And so that creates... Yes, a, f- a physical stress, but a social stress too. So that's another important piece of, I'm going to say, in need of, in need of problem solving and in need of, um, yes, coming to some acceptance about even potentially even um, grieving, right? There's a loss of ease in life um, and maybe some loss of experiences in life 
and some adenosine. And so taking the time to to label that, identify that, figure out figuring out how a person wants to respond to that. That's part of treatment too. My next two questions are are linked to one another, but I'll, of course I can only ask one at a time given human limits. <laughs> so I will I'll, I'll ask you the first one first. What is a good outcome in IBS? Like, is it realistic for the abdominal pain and changes in stool frequency to no longer be bothersome? Or is it more about the symptoms could still be there, but the person has really good insight about their patterns and they're able to constrain problematic safety behaviors that amplify perhaps the psychological overlay to it. Uh, and they're, they're really living according to their values. I mean, I think what I've heard from the conversation is that it lies along a continuum and that like, Either one of those options is possible, but how do you typically frame what a realistic outcome is for a client that's coming in and wanting help with this particular problem? I mean, one of the first things to, to we, that we haven't we spoke about before, but haven't touched on yet, is, is to acknowledge that IBS itself is very variable in its presentation for people. Right, that up to twenty percent of people have it, and not everybody has it to the same severity. So, setting expectations about what is possible in the future does depend on you know how severe a course of this you might actually be experiencing. Um, and as I mentioned, this this is a chronic problem with no cure. So even you know the medicine, there are medicines out there that one can try. There are you, can, you know you experiment the dietary factors and find the best formula for yourself. We work through the psychological piece and we try to find the best formula there too. But we're not expecting any of those components to result in full symptom remission. It has a chronic course. Um, so what we what we are expecting, we can expect that their symptoms can get a bit better. We can expect that we can start to live a much a, a more meaningful, value-driven life if that has been restricted. Again, realistic expectations in the sense that there are going to be moments when when illness overwhelms, right? But we want to, in fact, have those conversations about what's most important to you and what, what do you need to get out of out of living anyway, and how do we get that? One of the one of the big things that we notice in IBS in general is that it it's, it has a huge hit for quality of life, right? As you can, as we're talking about, so we can't, but we can't expect, and we do see that that hit can be lessened um, with with treatment. We can also see, you know, coming back to to some of the common conversations we have as psychologists generally treating anxiety, depression as a, you know, sort of like our meat and potatoes. We do see reductions in anxiety and depressed mood, we see reductions in fear, um, fear of the symptoms themselves, fear of the situations that they might pop up in. Um, so yeah, we can make some significant gains there too. Um, and an interesting um, study that I that I came across recently, old school, older school study actually, but reminded that the disappointments and losses in life are common, they're universal. They do, interestingly, they are more common among people in the roughly three-year period before diagnosis. So it's, again, depression, anxiety, or come up with these problems, and maybe that's not accidental, maybe that's part of the stress that is activating the diathesis. Um, but IBS also comes with its own set of disappointments and um, and losses, and we, those are things that can, for instance, trigger depression. So things are just hard to manage. I think IBS help treatment for IBS CBT. I think we can be we can expect that we can have those conversations about those losses and disappointments and find a way to live with them. Maybe even use them in an op in to better inform. Um, what choices for valued living one wants to make. Um, and so we can expect that to, the interference of that to be less. Catherine, do you, is there any possibility that we have artificially extracted IBS from 
perhaps where it should be nested within a broader consideration of someone's psychological functioning. Like for instance, is IBS a standalone problem or does it typically almost always co-occur in the context of depression, anxiety, you know, a trauma, things like that. The idea being that if we had broader conceptualizations of those diagnoses, perhaps we would include more physical manifestations uh, like I'm, I'm just purely making this up, but like uh, depression with GI disturbance, say, for instance, as a uh, sort of diagnostic entity. What's your thought on that kind of way of thinking about it? I think what you're touching on is the recognition that we have been too artificial. and Our language actually doesn't help us here in taking mental health and physical health as, as two separate entities. And we keep forgetting that it's not one or the other and they're not separate entities. It's, it's your it's health. It's health. Right. Um, I don't know that we need to, you know, over categorize and diagnose and, and, and make subcategories, right? Depression is depression. IBS symptoms are IBS symptoms. Um, I don't know if, if we need all the categories to help us better understand the whole. I think we actually need to move away from that and see, you know, it's, it's your health. Um, you're, it's the full picture. Um, and yeah, IBS, like, like with all health problems, when you're treating it, it helps to have, you know, to have a better understanding of what the, what the organic pieces are, what the, what what the symptom presentation of that is, what is, what is the reality your, your patient is facing with, right? You know, if, if, you, if you have someone with any health problem, you should be going online and, and check out your Merck manual at your local library and, you know, academic library and, and try to better understand the disorder for that person, right? That's part of their reality and, and the onus is on us to better understand that. Um, so treating IBS might have, you know, should, should have a bit of a different um, come from a different knowledge base than treating like cardiac disease or, or any of the other, you know, um, chronic fatigue syndrome or, or someone with cancer or somebody um, in, with any of the other numerous health problems that are chronic or out there. But yes, there's some common features to, to each of those, which is that we, we really should, you can generally be adding the P into our CBT model more often um, for people that, that even don't, don't necessarily even walk in the door with just with with a with a list of these comorbid problems, right? No, I totally agree. And uh, absolutely, and anyone who's listened to the podcast will know that I've got some major concerns about the DSM, especially from a diagnostic inflation perspective, right? So definitely not proposing we add yet more <laughs> diagnoses uh, to the mix. It just speaks to me to, again, how we've got these reliable diagnoses, but they may not be or perhaps be valid in the sense that we don't always know what they mean, and they may not be inclusive, inclusive enough to encompass reality. I mean, there's also this other thing we could think about where, like you mentioned, if someone's had some stressors or disappointments in life, do we actually even want to call that mental illness? You know, if they're having symptoms, perhaps that's just a situation, situationally appropriate response. Uh, but anyway, that, that's a whole other <laughs> discussion, perhaps. Well, I think we can, we, we can add to all those discussions by saying that, you know, whether something meets diagnostic threshold or not, improving health is a worthy goal and improving how we live with life's real problems is important physically, mentally, again, important to improve health. Exactly. These diagnoses are guidelines for clinicians, but at the end of the day, you've got a human being in front of you that's experiencing a difficulty and you want to assist them. That's the most important thing. And yes, that diagnostic framework can help guide and move us along, but it's not the be all and end all as far as I'm concerned. I, I think probably when you first start practicing, you get a little bit more invested in those kind of things, but over time, uh, you, you end up sort, sort of uh, understanding where the gremlins are in the system and uh, relax about those things a little bit. 
The second follow-up question I was going to ask you, just building on the first one, is what are some of the barriers to getting a good result? Are there reliable stuck points that you notice come up in therapy that are either related to the maybe clinician factors or maybe related to client factors like anxiety sensitivity or more of a rigid personality style or perfectionism, uh, things like that? What, What do you see in terms of when therapy doesn't go the way perhaps we'd hoped, what are some of the usual suspects around that? I don't have a comprehensive list for you, but 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 anecdotally and and in some and through some studies in, the, in in research, there are some things that we notice make it harder to to have a good outcome. You know, interestingly, right? Um, we talk about to go back to the C in CBT, right? We have a set of beliefs about not just events and interpretations for events and what's going on. We have beliefs about ourselves. We have beliefs about the illness too. Um, and one of the things that can get in the way is if we we see we see the illness is less controllable. We don't see have an internal locus of control there that we believe is going to have an impact. Um, of course, you, you can you can see the reverse being true too, right? It, it's not helpful to assume that you you are also in perfect control and can always <laughs> and and should be able to overcome the, the illness and, and, and manage it either, right? That both those things are two unrealistic ends of the spectrum and and not a good reflection of reality, and that can get in the way of being able to seize what control you do have and accept what you don't. Um, so that that those those beliefs are worth a conversation. There's not always a need to, to, to change, right? Changing beliefs is hard work. And we know that we don't always succeed at doing that. Um, and people are more and less willing, more and less able to hear that. I think in, in an odd way, stigma doesn't help there with that one in particular, because we can see if you have heard that message that it's all in your head, right? That, that can kind of polarize it in either direction for you, either one of those extremes, either by fighting against that with a sense of well, no, it's not in my head. This is real and I don't have control over it. Um, or on the other side, feeling, okay, then it really is up to me to always, why is this not working? And, and why can't I have the control I'm supposed to? Um, and getting discouraged, right? So hacker beliefs are helpful here. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and I hope our, I hope at least we can remove that factor from the equation and, and see the problem for what it is and free people up to not have to feel shameful or are overly responsible for it or fail to be able to find the areas, to see the areas of control they might have. That's one factor. Um, and we've talked a lot about, 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 a little bit about fear and, um, and, and how it, we've talked about it more in terms of situations so far, but yeah, it's worth, it is important to note that we have, we develop fear of the symptoms, right? And we do, of course, you know from other work with, with you know, other populations that you know, we as human beings vary in um, our sensitivity and, to those physiological sensations that come up. Um, unfortunately, too, this people with IBS, it's just part of the disorder. So you have, you know, part of the disorder includes some changes in your visceral um, perception, your visual sensations, right? So it's it's just well shown that, that people with IBS tend to experience some, even some of what the rest of us might notice as describe as more normal bowel sensations. For them, it it's it's not normal. It it, it is physiologically it's creating more pain and, and a more uncomfortable sensation um and so but if you add to that you know a reactivity to that or a, a hypersensitivity to that which yes we can see sometimes there's, a, there's things like anxiety sensitivity as you mentioned which is a trait tendency to be fearful of the physical sensations that we have so there can be trait pieces but the, let's not forget that the disorder itself essentially teaches you to fear symptoms um they are uncomfortable <laughs> um but anyway so you're working with that anyway a sense of trying to to overcome fear of the symptoms if you already have that trait piece too it can make that harder 
so yes, anxiety sensitivity can be can be an obstacle. Um, one that we know how to work with, though, fortunately, um, but it, it, it's in the picture. You mentioned perfectionism and OCPD traits and things like that. And I can come that, that, come that from a broader perspective, right? We're talking about expectations, um, talking about expectations for ourselves, for other people, for the systems in which we live. And unfortunately, IBS is going to um, challenge your ability to meet those expectations at some point or another. Uh, and so, of course, the more adaptable we can be with our own expectations uh, for ourselves, for others, for those systems we interact with, um, then the better off we're maybe able to, to manage those disruptions and be resilient to them. Let's not forget from the other direction, the better able the systems around us are able to manage those disruptions helps too. Um, so having a bi-directional theme here today, and there's a reason for that. Um, and works interpersonally too. But anyway, yes, you're talking about perfectionism. So in other words, more demanding personal expectations for ourselves or OCPD traits. In other words, more, more rigid expectations for other people. Yes, of course, that can get in the way when we and make things harder, make, 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 make the frustration, the disappointment, maybe the shame, the other feelings more pronounced for the person when they can't meet those expectations. Um, and of course, we know that those, those can be challenging. Expectations are thoughts and beliefs too. These are challenging things to change, um, but not things that we, but we have toolbox for that. They're not things that are outside of our reach to work, to work on. So they're, they are stuck. They can be stuck points. They don't have to be deal breakers in, in, in achieving a good result. Is medication an effective treatment strategy for IBS? Uh, maybe potentially even combined with cognitive behavioral uh, techniques? Again, yes, it's, this is a best treated from a multidisciplinary perspective. Um, and so it can um, be a helpful part of the picture, for sure. Again, we're not looking for a cure here. There isn't one, I'm afraid to say. Um, we're talking about, you know, symptom management, really. Um, those symptoms can include um, the the more, more frequent bowel movements, diarrhea, they can include um, the less frequent bowel movements, so constipation, um, the abdominal pain is a significant part of the symptom presentation. So again, pain management and some of the medications that can help with that is important. Interestingly, um, one of the things that's, that is frequently prescribed are um, in the treatment of, of the pain is actually antidepressants at a very low dose. So below the dose that you would treat a depression um, or anxiety problem with, so below that therapeutic dose, you, we do see that low doses of those antidepressants have a pain benefit for some. Um, so, you know, coming back to, you know, thinking of whole treatment, right? It fits well within the CBT framework. If we're talking about managing our symptoms and tracking our symptoms and seeing what works and what doesn't, medication is in the picture there as something to be exploring with your physician or GI specialist to see what works and what doesn't and trying out and seeing what the right formula is for you. One thing I hadn't mentioned yet in our, in our talking through our treatment methods, right, for um, for IBS from a psychological perspective is, is to note that there are some other other pieces that can sometimes have a physiological benefit in there in that picture too. Um, one of them being relaxation training methods um, that we use a lot, um, have historically used sometimes in in, in, in in treatment of mental health problems, for instance, but have, have, still have a huge um, benefit when it comes to treating chronic pain, for instance, right? And IBS is, can be seen, yes, it has those gut symptoms that we're talking about, but it is also a disorder of pain. Um, the abdominal pain is real. It's, it's, it's half the diagnostic criteria. It is a problematic thing. And, and we know that when we're in pain, right, we also, we hold ourselves differently. We hold ourselves tightly. Um, and, and that, 
and that doesn't work in our favor. And so relaxation is training to see if we can let go of some of that tension that's building up, to see if we can even um, work at decreasing the pain itself, um, whether that's with relaxed breathing exercises or progressive muscle relaxation or some of even like pain treatment related imagery that you can work with to try to help um, the gut pain be less, um, the, the, gut, the muscles unwind. Um, related to that too, there's actually some other um, less commonly used treatments that we know in, in among psychology, but, but they work. Hypnosis, for instance, um, has a bit of an outlet in terms of um, and it could and evidence showing that it's helpful. And so gut focused hypnosis for IBD um, and IBS is is, is a, a well documented and empirically validated um, available option too. Um, and Added to that, sometimes some biofeedback um, um, strategies are sometimes helpful here too, right? What we're working at is increasing awareness of the body and of what we can do to help impact the P in our CBTP model. So medication can be part of it. Uh, other alternative therapies and psychological treatments can be part of that, that process too. Okay, now it's time for the standard questions that I try to ask uh, guests, time permitting. Uh, Catherine, if you could have lunch with any psychologist, living or historical, who would it be? And what would you want to talk about? And if it's not a psychologist, if there's another person in another field or aspect of life, who you would choose? How come? I, I don't have a burning desire to converse with one specific person, I guess. Um, historically speaking, I... I love the dialogue that you have just in reading what they've written. And I've gotten to meet a lot of neat people. I actually think that if I, at the moment, if I was going to take someone to lunch, I think it would be the two, two mentors that I have lost in the last couple of years that I, that I, I that I miss. And I, I, I have valued their, their conversations in the past and I value their contribution to, to my thinking and my practice and my life. So uh, Dr. John Walker uh, passed away in December of 2018 and um, he was an important mentor throughout my entire psychology career. And uh, Dr. Mike Testchuk passed away um, in November, 2019. Um, he was um, director of clinical training and at the residency program in Manitoba for many years um, and uh, influenced a lot of people and is great and he missed. So I would enjoy sitting down with, <laughs> with those two people, um, again, having conversations again and saying thank you too. Yeah, those mentorship relationships can be so uh, special and informative, right? Where, you know, you're often a young clinician, you don't really know what you're doing. Having a steady hand at exactly the right time in your development can make all the difference and really help to shape your your thinking and quite frankly, set you up for your career in, in many in many ways, right? So no, I really appreciate your answer there. That's very, uh, very heart, heartfelt. Catherine, do you have a favorite CBT intervention? And if so, why is it your favorite? I do uh, imaginal exposure very often. It's, it's impactful. It's also pragmatically easier to set up. <laughs> All you need is your imagination and, um, and not considerably willingness to go there. Um, but it, I do find it, it brings client closer to, accept, closer to acceptance of fears of, of losses, of disappointments, of challenges. Um, and as it does that, it has, it has a wonderful way of opening the door to seeing life's opportunities. And I enjoy having those conversations with people a lot. Um, and so I, and seeing that it has, a, it has a value to people moving forward in terms of the, how they see the next choices in their life. And so that, that's my favorite um, um, intervention, both because it, it works and because it's rewarding for people in the end. 
Yeah, you are uh, preaching to the choir, as you would know for sure around that. I love trauma work. I love the existential challenges built into it and helping people to be able to reason through the unreasonable uh, in, in many ways. And uh, man, it's such amazing work to do with uh, with clients and what a, what a privilege. If you could give any book to a fellow psychologist, which book would it be? This is a tough question for me. If you've been in my office, um, those bookshelves are pretty full. <laughs> I contribute way too much of my working salary to, to Indigo and Guilford Press, et cetera. Um, Actually, more recently, I'm since COVID, I I, um, I read a book outside our field that has sort of that has spoken to me. Um, it's, it's written by a, a Canadian journalist, Tara Henley, and it's called uh, "Lean Out: A Meditation on the Madness of Modern Life." Um, and it's uh, it's one part sort of, sort of memoir and a little bit even travelogue because she's done a lot of traveling as a journalist. Um, and one part investigative journalism and one part um, reporting of her personal experience with mental health struggle um, and, and physical health struggle and how that has played out in her life. Um, and I, I recommend it to people because it's timely, it's current. So it just came out, I believe, uh, earlier this year or I'm not sure if it's late 2019 or early 2020. Um, it's, it's a useful description, I think, and reminder for a psychologist of the the context, the social context in which we are doing our work and a bit of an analysis of maybe some of the systemic challenges that are impacting us all right now. Um, and I think it's useful to be reminded of that, especially those of us in, in, in the business of helping people set goals to how to live within that, how to accept challenges that are real, how to um, still pursue valued living um, and you know what, maybe we also will need a reminder that our um, voices as psychologists have a value um, beyond just the work we do with clients that maybe we need to be thinking a bit more about advocacy in terms of bringing to the conversation what we know about what factors help people to live better, have better quality of life broadly. So that's a, that's a current good um, food for thought book that I would recommend. No, definitely going to check that out. I'm preparing a talk at the moment for a, uh, a large group uh, insurance plan, and they're very concerned about rising rates of anxiety and depression in their group. And one of the points that I'm going to make is that there's a lot of you know factors within, within the individual that explain the precipitation and, and evolution of mental illness, but there's a lot of societal headwinds at the moment that are not making life very easy. And I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm talking about social media, both parents being forced to work, sort of the keeping up with the Jones mentality, the the uh, sort of, uh, I, w- I won't even get started with respect to the parenting paradigm that's on the go at the moment uh, in, in some particular instances, but I could go on and on. But yeah, there's a variety of headwinds that we are operating within that are not helping at all. And people need to understand that, yes, you can do therapy at the level of the individual, but man, we, we've got a lot of things going in the wrong direction at the, uh, at the 30,000 foot level. Absolutely. And yes, this book is just barely predates COVID and actually you know, speaks to a good number of those issues you just raised for sure. Um, they are, they are not, they are not personal stresses. They're systemic ones. Right. And, and I do like the point that she reminds us of through in the book and as psychologists, we shouldn't need reminding of this, but we maybe sometimes need to is that, yeah, we can help a person to manage better in the situation that they're in. But um if we are walking around expecting people to single-handedly overcome systemic pressures, we are not um, 
doing them a service and we're not creating a recipe for success. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. If you could recommend any book to the client, perhaps it's, it's the same book, uh, what, what would it be? Well, it could be the same book. It's written for the general public. Um, but um, I do actually make a lot of book recommendations to my poor clients. <laughs> I tend to actually be fairly specific in those, though I do try to um, have a good selection of, of books to supplement and, and enhance our therapeutic work that are, tend to be very disorder-specific, though. Um, so I had to do, think a little bit to go, okay, what's, what's a broader book that more generally applies? And, and the one, again, the one at the moment that I'm taken with is um, a book by a fellow psychologist, uh, Randy Patterson which is uh, the assertiveness workbook. Um, and um, I, again, I'm, I'm gravitating to that because maybe even especially in these COVID times, right? It's useful to be reminded that um, we, we need things of each other. We have the right to ask for things from each other. Um, and we also have the responsibility to be listening to others when they, when they come to us. Uh, we also always have the right to set our limits um, and in terms of saying no to what crosses our boundaries or is more than we can handle. Um, but reminding that all of that, all of that social dialogue and interaction works best when we find the right effective language to do it, when we do it gently and respectively and um, clearly and, and with emotional awareness. And I think as much as assertiveness training, there are lots of books out there on that. I am appreciating um, the distilling down the insights that we have brought forth in our field and others to what some of the emotional and, and cognitive and other obstacles are to, to using these skills that we know work. Um, and I think it can help us all to just interact more effectively with each other in our everyday situations. Wonderful. And can you just say the name one more time of that book? It is the Assertiveness Workbook um, by, by Randy Patterson. Excellent. One day when I have time on my hands, which will be never, I'm going to compile a list of all the books that have been mentioned on the podcast. I should be doing that in the show notes. Note to self, note to future Pete, please make sure, please include the books discussed in the show notes. But you know, that that's the great thing about future Pete is that's a problem for future Pete to worry about. Current Pete doesn't need to worry about that. So when you're overwhelmed, it feels so good to put those problems downstream. <laughs> future Pete has a lot to worry about <laughs> anyway. Um, Catherine, what's the one message you'd like to leave with all of your clients? Um, I have a little dialectic, or in other words, an acknowledgement of seeming contradictions. Life is an opportunity. I think it helps to see it that way. And adversity is an unavoidable part of life. Um, and I, I do think, though, that those ideas work together because adversity, though, can be an opportunity, too. Not necessarily one that we would choose, but it has some to offer. And I think what I encourage people to do, I hope, I deliver this message, okay, is to, to be curious about even the most difficult of emotions and experiences because those emotions have information for us. Um, those experiences are part of what it is to be human um, and to be living life meaningfully and they can help help us move forward more meaningfully. And then always those difficult experiences are still best um, based honestly and openly. Yeah, I love that message. And I love the authenticity around the way that it maps the reality of the human condition and making room for it rather than trying to control it just seems to be so much more effective in the in the long run with the uh, with the folks that we see in our offices day in, day out, who, you know, often have some very, very difficult circumstances uh, in front of them. And like you say, they, those need to be faced openly, honestly, and authentically with with it, within the scope of one's values, I would probably I would add as well. 
Uh, Catherine, I always find this to be your, you know, one of my favorite questions. What's the thing you've ended up being the most wrong about professionally uh, in your career? I'm sure there are many things. I'm sure there's some things I don't know about yet that I'm going to, I'm going to learn. I'm doing um, in less helpful ways. Um, at the moment, I'm most conscious of having um, maybe previously underestimated and um, now benefited from deepening my understanding of the full impact of ADHD in adulthood. Um, so, you know, in our training, I think we all learn most about ADHD from more cognitive, from more the assessment sort of part of our, of our skill set, um, cognitive assessments of it. Um, I think we've all done those, or many of us have in our training. And I think one of the things that that, that teaches us, um, which is less helpful when we come to treating it, is that, yes, it's, it's sometimes, it's a challenge to diagnose in adulthood because adults are complex and we can't always, you know, pinpoint that attention problems is coming from this um, neurological diathesis <laughs> or problem um, uh, that we call ADHD, though that we should probably better call executive functioning problem instead of just focusing on the attention piece. I think that's not helping us either. Um, but anyway, I, coming at it more from a treatment perspective, um, um, watching it really play out, not just, yes, for, for the person themselves, hugely so, um, in very subtle but insidious ways um, and then but also doing some recent reading and, and noticing the incredible um, impact it can have on social relationships um, and social functioning in those relationships and on the other people too um, that again that's subtle but insidious and I don't feel that we really got a good handle on disseminating awareness of that disseminating what has been written about how we can try to help with that, both for the person and for the significant others around that person. Um, so, you know, I would tell my my previous self to pay more attention to that. And I'm trying to now. Yeah. It's just as a really big picture take on that. I think one of the biggest parenting fails of the past, I don't know, 20 or so years has been this focus on self-esteem when really the data suggests that it's impulse control that will ultimately lead to success in life, right? So if you can control your impulses, delay gratification, have longer term outcomes up and running in your life, have more effective interactions with people, it's gonna end up leading to feeling good about yourself rather than going the other way around. So it's not a direct comment on what you're saying, but you, you can see the uh, fundamental role of being able to manage your life from an executive function perspective play out in the lives of our clients, absolutely. It's the marshmallow test. Exactly. <laughs> Played out in, you know, the biggest predictor, which anyone who doesn't know that's the biggest predictor of doing well at school, other things like that is, can you, can you hold out for the second marshmallow? <laughs> can you delay gratification? Um, and yes, and that feeds forward into success, which then shapes self-esteem a lot. Exactly. Right? Um, not the other way. Though that said, um, again, coming back to reciprocal relationships in my conversation today, right? Once we have... Once our self-esteem is taken a hit, that low self-efficacy plays back into the system and it's a big problem. One last question for you here. Is there a new or exciting idea in psychotherapy that has captured your interest lately? You know what? Generally, I actually uh, see it. I see it's frequently coming back around full circle. The old ideas um, um, that now bolstered with deeper understanding of why they were perhaps even more valid than we realized. Um, and I... I, I I see huge actually few value to that, and I find that more interesting even than the in discovering the new flashy ideas that we hope to be game changers. Uh, so I, I think this process of coming full circle is helpful. 
Yeah, isn't that so common in psychotherapy in general, right? We always think we've in, discovered or invented something new. And then it's like, oh, yeah, this was being done like 5,000 years ago, right? It's just been repackaged within the context of the current zeitgeist. But it's, uh, you know, humans have probably worked the same way roughly for quite a while. <laughs> There's probably uh, first principles uh, that have been exploited over and over again in terms of affecting change. So absolutely. I agree with that hundred percent. I, I, and, and yet, and yet still, I, I enjoy the journey of, of coming around for a circle because I think it does refine, you know, as, as our methods and our understandings deepen each time we go around the circle, we get a, a deeper picture of what's going on and it helps tweak the ideas a little in helpful ways and, and helps deepen them. But yeah. Um, Human functioning is human functioning. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, I think of books that I've read many times, like the Schema Therapy Manual by Jeffrey Young and uh, associated authors. Every time I read that, it reads a little bit differently to me as I become more experienced in my career and have accumulated more hours in the seat, you know, dealing with difficult personality presentations and things of that nature. It just reads differently every time and I get some, I get a new tilt or perspective on that. Absolutely. Um, we are... I think that plays out too in, in how experience helps us to be more aware of what our clients are telling us and um, to, to hear that better. Totally agree. Well, Catherine, thanks so much for your time today. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I know any time that you spend with me is going to be time away from your own practice and your friends and your family. So thank you so much for this. And uh, I hope to have you back on soon. My pleasure to be here and happy to talk about these things um, with you and, and with sort of the broader audience it's it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about complex things with with, in in a bit more depth no and i think you've done a great job today speaking to the complexity of ibs and how all the different factors play together i think both the clinicians and the uh, lay audience will really appreciate the conversation today so thank you so much for that uh hopefully we'll see you soon in person here's hoping (laughs) sooner rather than later exactly so with that said i'll see you in 2022 for sure. Take care. Okay. Take good care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer, this podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. 